Father, your faithfulness is great. It is, it is more than I can comprehend in studying the Abrahamic covenant and your faithfulness in establishing the nation Israel and the life of Abraham. We just see how great it is, how much deeper it is than we can even comprehend. And we praise you for who you are and ask that you would bless this time, that you would open our eyes, behold the wonderful things from your law, that we would be hearers and doers of your word and we would be changed from how we know you and know what you require of us more from this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Abrahamic covenant is foundational for all that comes after it in Scripture. If you were to ask Bible scholars what are the top five chapters in the Bible, Almost all of them, in fact, I heard all of them would agree that the Ab chapter 12 and the Abrahamic covenant is going to be in the top five. Everything in the Bible comes back to the Abrahamic covenant. These were just a few of the quotes that I heard as I was studying this week about the Abrahamic covenant, about its significance, and about how profound it is in scripture. And so it helped me just wrap my mind around the, the importance of this text and what we're going to be studying today. So... As we begin, I'm just going to tell you from the outset, the past four weeks we've covered 11 chapters of scripture. This week we're covering 12. So I am not going to be going through all the details of each chapter, or even recapping what's happening in each chapter. I'm trusting that you guys did the lesson and that you had a rich discussion about it in small groups and that you're well informed. Otherwise, we'd be here to tell the service tonight. So we are not going to do that and we're going to just pull out how are they all connected? Remembering that these are not isolated stories. These are not just, you know, the story of Abraham going to Pharaoh is not a story about don't lie. There is a big picture story happening here. How do they all connect? But I do think that these scholars were, were onto something about the significance of this because God is establishing a nation. He is establishing the nation of Israel and he's laying out their foundational principles. It was illustrated to me this way. When we think about the founding of our nation, we don't think about revolution. That's not our founding principle. We need to be revolting people. Our founding principles are liberty and justice and freedom and individual rights, right? The things that are the reason that we fought to be a nation. Well, so too in the Bible, God is laying out what is foundational for Israel and it's faith. It is the value of faith and trusting his promises, his covenant promises with them. Abner Chow says that God is laying the foundation of this nation to have an international impact and that the Abrahamic covenant is about the value of faith and the values for Israel. And the rest of scripture we are going to see is going to work out this covenant and we are going to see how it relates to everything that comes after it. Remember, we've also been talking though about a theme of scripture. We looked in, in the Garden of Eden and we saw the pattern or the, we saw the kingdom. We saw that God had God's people. Remember our definition? God's people, Adam and Eve in God's place, the Garden of Eden under God's rule and blessing. Then we saw the parish kingdom, how they were kicked out, how they rebelled against his rule. And then we saw the explosion of sin on the earth. We saw that last week. And now we're going to see the promised kingdom. In this covenant, we're going to see the promised kingdom. We're going to see God's people, Abraham and his descendants, in God's place, the land of Canaan, which will become Israel, under God's rule and blessing and how they're going to bless all of the world. So we see that it's all interconnected. The importance of this covenant ties into the kingdom theme that we've been looking at. So as we start today, there is no outline. There is just a purpose statement that we're going to see in each chapter that we look at. So if you're trying to take notes, I would take notes by chapter. 
and just look for how the purpose statement is going to fit into each chapter. We're looking at the Abrahamic covenant as a whole, and we're going to look in these chapters, here's the statement, to see the value of faith and the outworking of God's promise to Abraham. We're looking to see the value of faith and the outworking of God's promises to Abraham. That's what we're going to see throughout Genesis 12 through 24, the value of faith and the outworking of God's promises to Abraham. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12. And we will read his promises. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I'm going to give you a little acronym that I was given back in my Old Testament survey class to understand the Abrahamic covenant. It's LSB, Land, Seed, Blessing. When I say Abrahamic covenant, you need to think LSB, Land, Seed, Blessing. And those are the key promises, the key points of this promise. And right away, we should notice some contrast, some things that are going to show us that for these promises to happen, it's going to be a work of God. In the book, what the Old Testament authors really want you to know, Stephen Dempster points out that he points out these contrasts. And he says, you know, Abraham's in a land. He has to go be in exile to get the promised land. You become an exile to get the land is a first contrast. He's going to be a great nation, but he's childless. He's 75. His wife's 65. But he's going to be a great nation, another contrast. Then he says his name is going to be great. This exile with no children is going to have a great name, but that should also take us right back to last week and the Tower of Babel. What did they want to do in the Tower of Babel? They wanted to make their name great. This is an anti-Babel, where man wanted to make his name great. God is going to make Abraham's name great. God is going to do this for him. We also see that he's going to be a blessing. We looked at that, and it's, and it's a blessing that's going to be universal. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed in you. Just like the curse has been universal, the blessings are going to be universal. And the land, the land is going to come to represent a return to Canaan. He says this, This promised land becomes central in the Old Testament as a type or anticipatory picture of the eventual restoration of all creation. It becomes a type and a picture of the eventual restoration of all creation, which would be the inheritance of all believers. So the land is really going to be the promised land. I mean, don't we even use that sometimes to refer to heaven? The promised land we're going to, it becomes a picture of what's going to happen, the return to Eden. So as we go through these chapters, we're going to be looking for, again, that purpose statement, the outworking of faith, and the outworking of these promises, the land, the seed, and the blessing in the life of Abraham. And this is going to be foundational for how the nation of Israel is supposed to operate. So we see in verse 3, it says, So Abraham went. And in Hebrew, this phrase is going to be repeated in chapter 22 when he has to take Isaac to Mount Moriah. Our English translations translate them differently, so we don't make the connection. But it's bookending and tying together all that's in the middle. This, it's, a, it's a key phrase that he's going to go. And this is his first test of faith, and Isaac's going to be his last test of faith. And he goes here, and he's going to go there. So just tuck that away, and we'll see how it ties together when we get to Genesis 22. But he goes, he's 75, and he goes through the land, and you might have noticed he goes three different places. He goes to Shechem, to Bethel, and to the Negev, and he builds an altar, and he worships. This is him going through the land, worshiping God for the promise that was given him, and trusting him for the promise. 
but it doesn't take very long. He trusts him for the promises, and then what happens? Famine, and he has his first failure. He, he te he's tested, and he fails. He's called to the land. He's called to be in the land. He's supposed to stay there, and the famine comes, and he heads on down to Egypt. He didn't call on the Lord. He didn't consult the Lord. He just leaves. Where he was supposed to stay, he goes, and this jeopardizes the seed. Now, again, we know that nothing truly jeopardizes God's sovereign plan, but in human terms, this is jeopardizing the plan. This is putting things in his own hands because what happens as soon as he goes in the land? Pharaoh takes Sarah. He puts in her harem. He might have never gotten Sarah back. She's supposed to be the mother of the promised seed. She could have had children by this man. It, he's jeopardizing the promises by going there. We're also going to see the outworking of the covenant. You, those who dishonor you, I will curse. What happens to Pharaoh? Plagues are put upon his home. Now, he didn't know. God is merciful. He uses those plagues to return Sarah, and the plagues are removed. They're not, it's not a permanent, because of Pharaoh's lack of knowledge, he's not permanently cursed. But it's a showing, you did dishonored, you're going you're, you're gonna to be cursed. You bless, and you're going to be blessed. And so Sarah is returned, and we see that fear led to a failure of faith, right, in Abraham's life. But what did God do? God protected, God delivered, God restored, and God brought him back to the land. Which brings us to chapter 13. Read with me in verse 3. It says, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. He's repenting from the debacle in Egypt. He's coming back into the land. He's going back to Bethel, and he's repenting. And I want us to pause here and think about the nature of faith, what Abraham is learning about faith right here. Abner Chow says, faith is a human expression of grace alone. Faith is a human expression of grace alone. Faith comes from us to solidify that it is all by God alone, by his grace alone. Faith is the recognition, trust, and reliance upon God doing it all. Romans 4.16 says that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. The promises rest on grace. They depend on faith to rest on grace. Abraham comes into the land and realizes he, it was a debacle. He messed it all up. But everything is okay. Why? Because of God. Because of grace alone. Because of what God was faithful to do in Abraham's life. It's, again, faith is a human expression of grace alone. And Abraham is beginning to understand and learn the nature of faith. So that was our purpose statement. The nature of faith, the value for the, the nations, were seen in chapters 12 and 13, and how the covenant was jeopardized. The promises were jeopardized, but God was faithful. Where in our life do we let fear keep us from having faith? Where is fear greater than your trust in God and trust in the promises that God has given you? I know for me this really just, I had to pause and think a lot this week as I was studying this. I can really struggle with legalism. Didn't you love how the sermon on Sunday ties into what we learned this week? And how Pastor Brian was even talking about when we legalism creeps in, right? We're not relying on that, the grace that's been given to us and how he was tying Isaac and Ishmael. Anyway, it was just beautiful because God's word is one story and it does all tie together and it does all connect. And I just was really thinking, like, am I relying on grace alone for my sanctification, not just for my salvation, right? We're saved by grace alone, but sometimes I think we get caught up in, I have to now do it all. But we have to rely on God at every point of our walk with faith 
and his grace alone. So where is fear impacting us like it did Abraham? I'd love to camp there, but for time, we're going to keep going. Verse 10, we go into, we, Abraham's repented, and again, immediate conflict. Conflict with Lot. The land can't support them all. And so what does Abraham do? This time he stays in the land, and he says to Lot, where, where do you want to go? And note what it says in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like Eden. Lot chooses Eden. I'm like, ah, that's where I'm going. But what does it say in verse 13? Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. He's caring about the worldly more than he's caring about the spiritual. He's caring about the temporal more than he's caring about what really matters. I'm going to take the land like Eden and ignore the wicked men. And we see how that plays out in his life later. Well, actually, next chapter, 14, it plays out quickly. Sorry, I got ahead of myself in my notes. He goes to the land, and what does God immediately do? We're looking for how the covenant works out. What does he do? God, in verse 14, says to Abraham, look, northwest, east, south. Look at all the land. It's all yours. The covenant promise is being developed further. He's now giving boundaries. He's saying everything you see is going to be yours. And then he develops the seed more. Remember, land, seed, blessing. He says your seed is going to be as much as what? The dust, right? If you can count that, then you can see how great your seed is going to be. And then we go to chapter 14, and Lot is captured by the kings. And the key word in chapter 14 is king. The kings come, the kings capture, and then Abraham takes his 318 men and he defeats four kings. Abraham is being foreshadowed and shown as a king. This is the first victory in the land. So we, we keep seeing this, land, seed, blessing. Here's the land. He has victory in the land, victory over kings. Victory with 300 men, 318, right? He has four kings he's battling. And it's, a, again, foundational principles for the land of Israel. When you are trusting God and you are trusting his promise and you are in his covenant, you will have victory in the land. This is what Joshua needs to know. This is what David needs to know when they come forward. This is how God is going to work in his covenant. He's not calling Abraham a king here, but he's showing him as what's coming. It's a foreshadowing. And he's showing the promises that are going to be theirs as they trust the covenant and the covenant working out. And then we go to verse 17, and we're going to learn about Melchizedek. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We know from later revelation in Hebrews and in Psalm that this is going to be a type and a foreshadowing understanding of what they're looking for when they look for the king. When they look for their, the seed that's going to be the king, they're going to look for one who is a priest and a king in the order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek, most kings are, are described by their lineage. David, son of, sorry, Solomon, son of David. Rehoboam, son of Solomon. That you always mention, but this king is not. His lineage is not mentioned. And so when Christ comes in as a priest, he's not a priest from the lineage of Levi, just like Melchizedek isn't a king that has a lineage. 
So we're starting to see a picture of what we're to look for, what's to be foreshadowed. He's going to be a king. He's going to be a priest. We also see that he's from Salem, which is also Jerusalem. Very obviously, that's going to play out a huge role in redemptive history, that he is a king of Jerusalem. He is greater than Abraham. We see that in that he blesses Abraham, the greater blesses the lesser, and that Abraham gives him the tithe, which is a way that he is worshiping the Lord, just like he is the priest of the Lord Most High, and in giving this tithe, Abraham is worshiping and praising God for the victory. And that phrase, God Most High, it's the first time it appears in Scripture. It means sovereign Lord. God is continually revealing himself, who he is, through the names that he keeps revealing in Scripture. So another revelation, another dimension of who God is. So we're seeing this foreshadowing of the royalty and the kingly line that's going to be coming. And we see as Abraham has faith, he has victory in the land. Well, this brings us to chapter 15. And this is where the covenant is going to be ratified. The promises have been made, but they're ratified in this chapter. And so it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He said, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Another revelation of who God is. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham says, but I have a problem, Lord. What? My heir is Eliezer. I still don't have a son. But the Lord says to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is Abraham believing the promise for the seed. Not just that he's going to have a son, but the promise that for all, for all the seed is going to do, for how the seed is going to bless all of the nations of the earth. Abraham is believing what is revealed of the gospel thus far. Is all the gospel revealed? No. But what is revealed thus far, that there's a seed who's going to bless, who is going to, he is trusting that promise He's trusting in the, the, what he knows of the gospel. That is what his faith is in. And his faith, not his works, because so far his works really aren't going to really win at many points, right? His faith is why he is righteous. And he's righteous, declared, justified and righteous by God by his faith, faith that God gave, that God is developing, and then God is going to ratify the covenant. He tells him to bring the animals, Right? And what did he do to the animals? He cut them all in half, and he lays them out. And in the ancient Near East, the way that you would have a covenantal ceremony, if you were going to covenant, was you would cut the animals in half, and then you would both walk through the body parts. And you'd be saying that if I break the covenant, you can do to what you did to the animals, you can do to me. And if you break the covenant, what I did to the animals, I can do to you. And it's a very vivid picture of the importance of keeping the covenant. What happens to Abraham? God puts him in a deep sleep. Does Abraham walk through the animals? Only God does. Because this is a unilateral covenant. We use this with the Noahic covenant term. This is a covenant dependent on God alone. God is going to pass through saying, I will keep this covenant with you. I will make these promises come to pass. It is not conditional on Abraham or his seed or any works that Abraham could do. And praise God it's not because we would be lost otherwise. If the covenant depended on Abraham, haven't we already seen in just 14 chapters, man fall and sin and fall and sin and fall and sin. And it is only God's faithfulness and only God's grace that has brought us to this point. And it is only God keeping this covenant that is going to take us to the end. And so God is going to keep the promise, the promise of land, 
promise of seed, promise of blessing. But he also tells Abraham that his offspring is going to sojourn in another land for 400 years where they're going to be oppressed. And we just need to tuck that away because when we get to Exodus, because we know from Exodus, right, it's Egypt, that's where they are, this is not a failure of the covenant. It's not a failure of the promise. It's something God had planned from before time. And God had let him know before there even is one descendant. This is going to be God's plan. Just tuck that away for when we get to Exodus. So the promise is reiterated. The covenant is ratified through the ceremony, and it depends on God alone. And we see Abraham's faith has grown. His faith has counted him as righteous. But now we are in chapter 16, and again, a lack of faith. We see that there's still no child, and Sarah says, go to Hagar. But what, what is Hagar described as? Hagar the Egyptian. Hagar the Egyptian. It says a few times. Why? Remember when he went down to Egypt and he came back with many goods, including female slaves? The consequences of that first decision are now going to be compounded in his life as he goes in and has a son with her. This is not a son of faith. This is a son of works. A son of we're going to take the promise and we're going to take the covenant in our own hand and we're going to make it happen. But we've already just saw in the last chapter, it's not what we are going to do, it's what God is going to do. And we saw even at the beginning that these are promises, these are almost impossibilities, that we're going to have to see how God works out the land for an exile, and God works out the seed for a barren couple, and how God works out the blessings. Like, this is all going to be about what God does, but they're taking matters into their own hands. They're not waiting and trusting on the Lord. And again, it's a failure of his faith. And it's a failure with severe long-term consequences because Ishmael becomes the father of the Arabs who are the Muslims today. And today the world still has, and much of world conflict revolves around the Arab-Israeli conflict that affects all of us and has for thousands of generations. For thousands of years, the world is affected by this decision. And in this culture, this wasn't a very abnormal thing to do. To have a child, it was basically having a surrogate have a child for you, was a normal custom in this time. So they were thinking, this is what you do. And they knew it was wrong because they had the promises, but it wasn't something they made up. It was something that was normal for their culture. And yet, how profound and long-lasting the consequences of sin. So, turn to page, chapter 17, my Bible later turn. 13 years of silence. God is not pleased with what Abraham has done. 13 years of silence. And in verse 17, he breaks the silence. And what does he say? Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Hasn't said anything for 13 years. Walk before me. This is the, kind, this is the term walk that was in the Garden of Eden when God walked with them in the garden. This is the term that Enoch walked with God and was no more. This is the walking in relationship and in obedience and in intimate fellowship. Walk with me, Abraham, and be blameless. Put off sinning. Trust me, right? I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you. And then again, the covenant is reiterated and it's expanded. So we're seeing in all these chapters, how is the covenant developed? Verse 6 kings shall come from you. That's new. He hasn't said that yet. We saw a picture of it in chapter 14, but now it's stated, kings are coming from you. 
and I'm going to change your name. You're no longer going to be Abram. You're going to be Abraham, the father of many nations. And I'm going to give you a sign for the covenant, a sign of circumcision. So the covenant is given a sign. Abraham's name is changed, and Sarai's name is changed to Sarah. She is now, and that means princess, tying back to the royalty. And that sign of the covenant, verse 14, if you don't have that sign, you're not in the covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This doesn't mean broken like the covenant is no more. This means they're not in the covenant. They didn't, they're not participating in it because of their disobedience. But God is still going to keep his covenant promises to those in the covenant because it's a unilateral covenant. But we have a sign and we have a promise. He says, this time next year, your son will be born. There is now a deadline. There is now a, a time the son is coming. Then in chapter 18, God appears to Abraham and he says about, mentions the son, and what does Sarah do? She laughs, right? So Sarah laughs and says, after I'm worn out, I'm in verse 12, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And this is the key verse. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the root of faith is this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what my professor taught me, Todd Warren. This doesn't mean that if you have enough faith that you'll be healed of your diseases or that you'll get you know, the health, wealth, and, health and prosperity gospel. Have enough faith, and this means that when you have faith in who God is, who God has revealed himself to be in his word and in his promises, is anything too hard for the Lord? When God promises you that you will have a child in your old age, is anything too hard for the Lord? When God promises you that he'll make you a great nation, is anything too hard? When we look at who God is and his promises and we're trusting in that, nothing is too hard for the Lord, and that is the root of our faith, and that is where we have to examine our faith, and where is it weak, and where is it strong, and where do we doubt that, and where do we not believe? And we also see in this that God isn't just using Abraham to advance some agenda that he has. He is. He is creating a nation. But he's caring about the relationship, the personal relationship with Abraham. Walk with me is the intimate walking, coming and talking to him personally, appearing to him, telling him he'll have a son. And then we see in chapter 19, bringing him into what he's go his counsel, what he's going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. God cares about the personal relationship with Abraham and Sarah as well as what he's doing in the big picture. He loves them. So we see promise is going forward. We see faith is being developed. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We see the covenant is being expanded. It's going to be kings are coming from you, the sign of the circumcision. And now we have, again, Lot. And I, I kind of chuckle at this passage because Abraham is, in effect, praying, right? He's having a conversation with God. And what's he really want? Lot to be spared. But he starts with this high number. If there's this many righteous, right? And then this many righteous, and then this many. But he never says, would you spare Lot? Well, are there even 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah? No. No. In fact, if it weren't for scripture later saying that Lot is righteous, I don't know that I would understand that he was from this passage, right? I mean, he's being dragged out of the city before destruction. Like, you gotta come now. And yet God knows what the real request of Abraham's heart is, that he wants Lot spared, and God delivers Lot. And he judges, and this takes us right back to God doesn't change, right? God is judging the city for their wickedness, and the place that was like the Garden of Eden is dead. 
You go there today, it's the Dead Sea. It is dead all around it. It is dead. It is not a garden. And we reminded what we learned last week. God is holy. God is just. He judges sin. And we are never to take the patience of the Lord as doubting that judgment will come. God will always judge sin. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the flood, just like Babel, he hasn't changed. But he is mercifully delivering Lot. And quickly, Lot goes from Sodom and Gomorrah to incest, right? His daughters get him drunk. They both get pregnant. And so Lot's son is also his grandson, is also his nephew. Wrap your mind around that for a little while. It is a messed up situation. And it's a shameful situation. And those people are going to be out of the promised land. Ben-Ami, he becomes the father of the Ammonites. Moab becomes the father of the Moabites. And his, Moab, even, his name even means, who is my father? But who comes from Moab? Ruth. Ruth comes from Moab. God is a merciful God. But we will save that for when we get to Ruth. So from the shameful beginning, we have these two nations who will play a part in the, in the plan of redemption later. They are going to interact with Israel a lot. Chapter 20 brings us now to another test of faith. Abraham is in the land of Gerar, and he is in Abimelech's territory, and he tells Sarah what? Tell him, you're my sister. We've already done this. We should know better, right? But how many times are we tested in the same ways? If we don't learn the lessons that God wants us to learn, they will come around again. God will keep bringing them into our lives until he's fully rooted out what he wants to in our heart to make us more like him. And Abraham gets tested again, and here Abraham fails again. But we need to stop and ponder something here. Sarah's a 90. Who wants a 90-year-old woman in their harem? You want young, beautiful, fertile women in your harem. This is telling us something about what God is doing in Sarah's life. Because this is not long after the chapter where he says, in a year, she's going to have a child. He's making her able to have children. He is, I don't know how this works specifically, but she is beautiful and she is desirable. And Abimelech thinks she can have children. And that is a testimony to what the Lord is doing in her life. She's 90 and she's in the harem. So here we go. Um, God tells Abimelech, right, going back to how does it work out? How is the covenant going to work out? Blessings and curses. Abimelech, you are a dead man. You are a dead man for this woman. I didn't know. They lied to me. And he says, I I know. God is so merciful. I know you didn't know. And who kept him from sinning? God did. I kept you from sinning. I kept you from doing this. Go to Abraham, and he will pray for you, and you'll be restored. And Abimelech does it. And Abimelech is different than Pharaoh. He not only goes to him, but then he says, stay in my land. Remember, Pharaoh says, get out of here. You can go anywhere in my land, and he gives him lots of possessions, right? So in a way, Abimelech blesses Abraham, and he is in return blessed. The curses, the the infertility that was put on his home is removed, and again, it comes back to God. God has delivered Sarah, God has delivered Abraham, God has protected the seed. Over and over again, they're putting the promise in jeopardy, and over and over again, God is showing that he is sovereign and that he will protect, and that he is going to make his plan come to pass. Well, finally, chapter one, the long-awaited, chapter 21, excuse me, the long-awaited son is born. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And what did they name him? They named him Laughter. Isn't that a wonderful name? They named him Isaac, which means laughter. Verse 7, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse 
yet uh, children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And so the promised son is born, and now all the promises rest on him. All of this covenant promise, it all rests on the seed, and there is one seed. There is Isaac. So everything going forward is dependent on Isaac. So Ishmael is removed because Israel could be a threat to the seed, and then, we ha- and then we're going to go quickly to the sacrifice, but there's this little brief interlude, right? The tweet treaty with Abimelech in verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And this is, again, just showing us how the nation should interact with Abraham. You should want blessing from Israel. You should want a good relationship with them. And when you do, it will go well with you. Those who, you, who bless you, I will bless. And this is a picture of how foreign nations should be relating to them. And then we come back to chapter 22, and this is the final test of faith for Abraham. It says, After these things, God, rested, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, to whom you love, and go to. This is that same phrase going back to chapter 12, when Abraham went, he's supposed to go to, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And he does. Abraham does it. And we see here, to a picture, it's not just, you know, walk a couple hours this way. It was a journey, wasn't it? They had to travel for a while to get to Mount Moriah. This is a picture of the persevering nature of faith. We started 25 years ago when Abraham is 75, and now Isaac is born. Actually, we're way past that because Isaac is probably in his 20s or 30s at this point in time, so he's, Abraham is somewhere in his 20s or 30s as well. So he's had all of these years of faith being matured and grown and his sin being winnowed out of him, and we're seeing a picture of a persevering, enduring faith because that's the true nature of faith. And he goes all the way to the mountain, and he tells his men, and my translation doesn't translate it this way, but it, it's in the Hebrew, and he says, we will go and we will come back. We are coming back. He trusts, and we know from Hebrews, but he trusts that God could even resurrect Isaac from the dead because God is putting his own plan at risk. The, everything rests on Isaac, and God is saying, kill Isaac, right? You kill the seed, there is no more seed. And do you trust me with everything? And will you give up everything trusting that I can take care of everything? This is complete trust that he's asking. And is showing trust on Isaac's part too. At Abraham's age and Isaac's age, Isaac could overpower him or run away. Like he's definitely strong enough to avoid this, but he doesn't. And we're getting ready to sacrifice. And then verse 11. And Abner Chow says, watch out for the double name call. Abraham, Abraham. We're going to see this throughout scripture. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you see that, something big's happening. Pay attention. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And then down in verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And he said, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And so we see the substitutionary, the picture of the lamb in place of Isaac, the substitutionary death, and what that's going to be foreshadowing. But the, the, the foreshadowing goes so much deeper than that. Where is Isaac? He's on Mount Zion. Mount Moriah, in the New Testament, is called Mount Zion. Actually, in the Old Testament, it is as well. Mount Zion is where the temple is built. The temple is where the sacrifices happen. 
The sacrifices take place in the temple right here. It's not a coincidence. When Christ, and this is just jumping ahead to next year, a preview of coming things, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies on Passover at the sixth hour, which is when the Passover lambs begin to be sacrificed in the temple. At the time of the Passover sacrifices, when Christ dies, the sacrifice is happening where Isaac was foreshadowing a substitutionary death. And what does Isaac represent at this time? The one son, the only son, the promise of the seed, right? We see it all coming together. The promise of the seed is always resting on Isaac, at least figuratively. We know that God's going to work this out. And then it says in Hebrews that Abraham figuratively received him back from the dead, which is a picture of resurrection. The gospel is in the Old Testament. So we see all of this being foreshadowed, all of this being pictured for us, and it is clearer to us than to them because of New Testament revelation, but these things are being pictured for Israel, for their values of faith, for what they need to be as a nation, and Abraham passes his last test. You know, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God is going to finish the work that he's done in us. Todd Bowen says that Abraham proves that God is trustworthy and that he is a greater treasure than his promises. God is the treasure. And when Abraham has victory, who's really getting the victory? God is, because who created and developed and sustained and gave Abraham this faith? God did. This is God's work in Abraham's life. God gets the victory. Well, chapter 23, Sarah dies. This is significant because this is the first land Abraham owns in the promised land. This is it. This is the, he finally owns land. And just a couple things I found interesting about this. Back then, if you wanted to own land, you had to be a landowner, essentially. They didn't want to let people who didn't already own land into the club. That's why they're offering him the free burial spot, so that he's not in the landowner's club. We, no, 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 take it for free. He says no, and he pays 400 shekels. Scholars estimate that's between 10 to $20 million today for a burial plot. He could have bought 150 square miles of land with that. He gets a burial plot. But it, does it show you how God's blessed him? He goes, here you go. Here's the 400 shekels. Here's your 10 to 20 million. He just plops it down because God has blessed him and he owns land in the promised land. And we're going to pick up chapter 24 and all that's happening with Isaac and Rebecca next week. But how does it tie into the big picture? We need the seed to continue, right? Isaac isn't the promised one. We need the seed to continue. In fact, sorry, this, I thought this was so neat. I forgot to mention it. But in chapter 22, when Isaac is sacrificed, I've been using the word seed all along because I want that in our mind for the Abrahamic covenant. But God has been calling it offspring. And here, when he sacrifices him, he says, I see that you won't withhold my son. I'm going to keep my covenant with you. That's when he says, your seed. And that ties us back to Genesis 3.15, and that from your line will be the serpent crusher. He ties it all the way back to the seed. We have the multiple seed, the seed that's as many as the stars and the dust and the sand. But we also have the seed that's going to be the serpent crusher. And that's where we see that promise tie in. And we need the seed to continue, right? We're still not as multiple as the stand on the seas and the, and the stars in the sky. And so we need a wife for Isaac, but not a Canaanite, not from the cursed line of Ham, not from this evil, whip, wicked, corrupt people. We need them from the line of Seth. We need them from, so we go back to Abraham's line and we, we find a wife that is not from the line of Ham and the line can continue. So as we leave and we think through this this week, Remember that faith is trusting God, his word, and his promises, and it's all by grace alone and not by our effort. So where are we relying on our effort? Where are we fearing instead of trusting? 
And what are the promises that we need to believe? Are we trusting God for the forgiveness of sins? Are we trusting God that he will never leave us and forsake us? Are we trusting his character? What have we seen so far? God is holy. He is just. He is merciful. And then we've seen that he is sovereign Lord, that he was the God who sees, that he is the God who is a shield, that he is the God who provides. Just every page we see more and more of who God is. Are we trusting that he is going to judge sin, that he's going to return and make all things new? We, and are we trusting in faith and not in works? If we have faith, works do follow. James makes that clear. We will have works of faith. But is faith what's coming first in our heart and our life? I pray that it is. And let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these women. I thank you for the study. I thank you for your promises. I thank you that you have promised in the Abrahamic covenant redemption and blessing for all the nations of the world. And that includes us and that we are blessed through what you have promised Abraham thousands of years ago. Help us to trust your promises. Help us to trust your character. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.